Good evening, and thank you for being here. I appreciate so much your desire to be here as we share the gospel together. It's oftentimes in, in meetings that preachers get up in front of crowds and don't know hardly anybody, and we begin to try to, as we go throughout these lessons, figure out the audience and what to say and how maybe to say some of the things that we want to say, but it's nice as I stand here and see so many of you that I know. Um, if I didn't know better, if the carpet was a little bit different, I'd think I was in Danville. Uh, and seeing so many that, uh, that I appreciate the fact that they're here um, and their desire to be here. appreciate Josh McKibben making his way all the way up from Somerset. He's got, I'm sure, many other things he could be doing, but I'm glad Josh is here. And Jim from Georgetown, um, who you know, came and was here with you last night and, and I'm sure did an excellent job uh, to be here too. There's so many of you that I've known throughout the years from different places and I'm just so thankful that you're here. It means, means the world to me um, to be able to be with you and to be able to study various topics. And this one um, is different. I, I don't know, I was thinking as, as, as uh, Kyle and I were, were talking about this series of lessons and, and what... Um, what you all wanted to cover here in this week, it started off, I think Kyle sent me a list of like 72 topics and said, hey, pick one of these. And as I started screening through them and looking at them, I got a text a day later that said, nope, never mind, there's just one. I said, okay. So as, as he gives me this, I start thinking about it, and I, I start to wonder in all my life of preaching and all my life of hearing the gospel, I don't know that I've heard this sermon. I don't know that I've ever sat and thought about racism as an issue. I'm going to talk a little bit about why. I grew up in Cincinnati, Ohio, in a congregation of uh, about 100 to 120 that was about 50% white, 50% black. I honestly didn't know any better that they, we were different. Honestly, in the congregation I grew up, my closest friends came from all various backgrounds and loved me and supported me and took care of me regardless of what we looked like, what we thought about, what our backgrounds were, simply because we were all really the same. But you turn on the news and there's Ferguson. And as the fires finally burn out in Ferguson, then Baltimore starts. And there was a verdict in Cleveland a couple of days ago with more violence that they thought may happen. And we open our eyes outside of just maybe where we are or what our own experiences are and see that as a country, as a society, we've got some issues. It's some issues that we need to talk about, that we need to discuss. I thought maybe I haven't heard this sermon because racism doesn't happen within the Lord's church. Because as the Lord's church, we're one body, and surely nowhere in the Lord's church would there ever be place for racism. Google's not your friend when you think things. Because you Google racial issues in Church of Christ, and you'll find some fun stuff. Fun's not the right word for that. Some bad stuff that was written about segregation and white preachers holding white meetings and black preachers holding black meetings and how the two should never co-mingle together. 
And with tears in my eyes, I read articles and gospel papers written all about this stuff throughout the 30s, 40s, and 50s. I said, well, that was the 30s, 40s, and 50s, right? We've come a long way since then. So I got on the phone and I called some of my friends that have been in various parts of the world. And unfortunately, they tell me that racism is alive and well today. In churches of Christ. In Kentucky. In Alabama. In Texas. In North Carolina. Why? Why is this an issue? Is racism new? Is it just a United States thing? Did we invent this whole thing based on our history of, of what we went through in the forming of this country? Well, no. You know, when I, when I dig around in my New Testament, racism was alive and well in the New Testament. How could that be? How could we see racism in the New Testament? We don't ever see them talk about colors, do we? I don't ever see them saying that, you know, this is white only or black only or Hispanic only or minority only here or there. But no, what do we see? We see Jews and Greeks, don't we? We see Jews and Gentiles, don't we? This wasn't just, in, and I think in a lot of ways we want to paint this picture that, well, yes, but that we know the story behind that, right? The, the Jews were God's chosen people because they were to bring about the Christ, and we paint this history of we knew that, and that was all the focus in the mission. But I want you to listen to Matthew chapter 5, verse 47. The word Gentile here is used as a slang derogatory term. Listen to what Jesus says. And if you greet your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Don't even the Gentiles do that? So the Gentiles obviously aren't as good as we are. There's a frame of reference here. Now, does that mean that Jesus is necessarily you know, racist or anything like that? Please don't misunderstand anything that I'm saying here. Jesus is speaking in terms that they understood that they would have used. This is so much of a, of a problem. What happens in Acts chapter 15? Even at the spreading of the gospel, even after Cornelius is saved, the Jews are saying, not the Gentiles. You've got to become a Jew first, then you can come to Christ. You've got to be like us before you can get Jesus. It's alive and well. But there's something you could be that's worse than a Gentile. You can be a Gentile and that's bad enough, but boy, don't be a Samaritan. Don't be a Samaritan. John chapter 4 and verse 9, the Samaritan woman that Jesus is talking to at the well, says to him, how is it that you, a Jew, would ask for a drink from a woman of Samaria? <clears throat> for Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Listen to what this woman is saying. She's saying you would rather die of thirst than ask a Samaritan for a cup of water. You, we don't have any dealings here. Why would you, being a Jew, want to reach out to me? Jesus goes on to explain to her about redemption and about how she knew, if she knew who he was, she'd ask for living water because that's what Jesus provides. Racism's been alive and well, my friends, unfortunately, for thousands and thousands of years.
Since there's been people, there's been racism. But why? Where does racism come from? What are the very root causes of racism? I'm persuaded that racism comes based on differences. We're different. Now, we can get into this conversation, and I don't want to take up a lot of our time tonight going down some side roads, but let's kind of understand some things, and if you want to get into this later, individually we can. The Jews were God's chosen people, but what were they chosen for? They were chosen to bring about the Christ. The Jews had a law. They had the Ten Commandments. They had the law of Moses, and they had God and the prophets with them. But are we to really believe that the Gentiles had nothing? I don't think that's fair. I think sometimes we paint this image that the Gentiles were bad because the Gentiles were completely and utterly separated from God. But my friends, that's just not the truth. The book of Jonah is a small peek into this window. Jonah is told by God to go to Nineveh. Nineveh is the capital of Assyria, an arch enemy of the Jews. The Ninevites, or Assyrians, were told to repent. Jonah was so upset about this, he went in the opposite direction because what did Jonah say to God? <coughs> Jonah said, God, I know you'll forgive them. I just want to ask you a very simple question. If there is no law, can you repent of something? Everybody here familiar with the Autobahn over in Germany? Autobahn's a big freeway in Germany with no speed limit on it. No speed limit. So if you have a Maserati and you want to do 185 on the Autobahn, nobody's going to stop you because there's no speed limit. So if I'm driving on a road with no speed limit and a cop pulls me over and says, son, you need to repent of speeding, I'm going to ask him, what law did I break? Where was it? There was no speed limit sign that he could point to. The Ninevites had a law. The Assyrians had a law. Now, we can get into all kinds of different rabbit trails about what that was. I'm personally persuaded that it was a patriarchal-type law. They had the same thing that everybody had back in the days of Abraham. We can go back to Genesis, and everybody had that. We can also see that God had some one-off laws. God had different agreements back then. I'd introduce you to the high priest Melchizedek. What's he a high priest of? What did that system look like? How did it work? I don't know. I just know God had something else going on over there. And I know that Abraham, the father of faith, had to pay tributes to him. I know there was something going on that God had working with those people. So these Gentiles that were different, that had a different law, a law from God, a law maybe patriarchal or written on their hearts, or, or however God did that, were asked to repent. Jonah, I'll promise you, didn't preach an impassioned sermon. The gist of Jonah's sermon, I believe the entirety of Jonah's sermon that we have recorded in scriptures is 40 days and yet Nineveh shall fall. That was it. Now, out of that sermon, the king commands everyone from the greatest to the least of them to sit in sackcloth and ash and repent to God. My question is, how do you know to do that? How do you know to do that? How do you know that calling out to God, you're going to receive grace and mercy the same way that the Jews did when they called out to God and he pulled them out of the Assyrian and the Babylonian captivity? How do you know to do that? 
unless you have something. So the Gentiles are different, right? But let's, let's agree to that. But the Gentiles had a relationship with God. The Jews had a relationship with God. But they had different relationships for different purposes. Many of the minor prophets talk about the fact that on Mount Zion, God will call out and gather all of his children in. All nations, everywhere. Jews, Greeks. All of us will be gathered in. But these differences can divide us. You don't look like me. You don't talk like me. You don't act like me. Maybe we're not on the same socioeconomic level. Maybe we don't have the same level of education. And we can look at the outside of the person and find a hundred reasons that we're different. But I'd argue that all of us would find those same hundred reasons, whether it was skin color, socioeconomics, or anything else. Most of us tonight in this room aren't exactly alike. But those differences, if we focus on them, can divide us or they can strengthen us. I've wondered oftentimes why. Why God asked us to come together and assemble. Does God need us to be here tonight? No. Need that? Could each of us individually, within ourselves, within our families, come to God and have access to God At home on the couch? Yep, absolutely. Do it most nights. Why are we here, though? Why would God call all of us to come together if it's not for the fact that we need each other? The fact that all of us in our differences, I'm persuaded, are like puzzle pieces. All of us have some parts that help others, and we have another part of us That's a hole that needs somebody else in it. I'm convinced and persuaded that the reason why we're different, socially, emotionally, externally, is because we need those differences to be stronger, to be who we ought to be. But if we focus on our differences, it'll divide us. I'm also convinced that most differences that are external cause us to overlook internal similarities. That when we look at the outside of somebody, when we look at the external person, we lose sight of who they are on the inside. You know the old adage, you don't judge a book by its cover? There's a lot of books with terrible covers that I've read that weren't so bad. There are a lot of books with really good covers that I really wish I wouldn't have read. But it happens. We make snap judgments in time. I'm convinced that these roots of what divide us, the focusing on things that, let's be honest, don't really matter, but they stand out. They're the first thing we see. They're the first thing we notice. They're the first thing that we immediately start to calculate. Cause us to never ask the internal question. Never ask, do you hurt like I hurt? Never ask, do you bleed like I bleed? Never ask, do you feel like I feel? Never ask about where you are spiritually because all I can see is you're not like me you're not like me and in some ways isn't that a little bit scary right in some ways if I don't know what to expect if you look different 
I don't know how to make that snap judgment to say we're the same and you and me are exactly alike. But how many of us have been surprised? Somebody that we thought looked like us, talked like us, acted like us. When the lights came on, not so much. Not so much. How do we fix this, though? How do we fix these differences that divide us, that cause people to set cities on fire? First and foremost, I'm not here to tell you that the government can fix anything, because I don't believe that. If you believe the government can fix all your problems, we can have other conversations later. We can talk about whether our allegiances are of this world or of the kingdom, if we want to really fix problems. I'm persuaded that the only fix for any problem, any social ill, any construct or sin of man is found in the one that created us. Because he knows how we work. He knows how we tick. Same way if there's a problem with my house, I want to go to the guy that built it. I want to figure out what he built, how he put it together. Go back to those plans and find out what's wrong with it. Because I'll know how to fix it. I'm persuaded that we fix racism by understanding how alike we really are. Now, what do I mean by that? Are, are, we, are we all exactly alike? No. All of us are different, as we've talked about so far. Is that a reason to fight? No. Is that a reason to be upset? No. Is that a reason to create snap judgments? No. We, we create snap judgments based on the external all the time. It's not always about race. How many people have been the teenager that everybody looks at and assumes that you don't know what you're doing or what you're talking about? I've been that guy. I've been that guy. That's nice, kids. Sit down and shut up. Let the grown folks talk. How many have been the young adult that's still trying to make a difference within the church, within a work organization or structure, and the older ones look down on you and say, you're new here, scamp. Go on back to the back. We make, people make these snap judgments all the time, not only about race, but about various things because we have an image in our mind where somewhere along the way we've seen a certain person or group of people act in a certain way and we assume everybody else is going to act exactly the same way. Some of us have made those judgments today based on the car somebody drives. That's, that, that to me was always the craziest one. Oh, he's a Ford guy. That means a Chevy guy <sighs> drives a truck. I, I don't know what any of that stuff means. But people make judgments about it all the time. You know what kind of person drives a car that looks like that. No, I don't. I really don't. But in making those snap judgments, we've got to get to the point where we stop looking at people and start looking at souls. Where we start to determine who we really all are. We start to listen to Romans chapter 3, verses 20 through 22. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight. Pause. Nothing that any of us do, no matter how good or bad, can ever justify us. I don't care who you are. Listen to what he says. No human being. <clears throat> I don't care whether you've got two, a two legs, two arms, one arm, one leg, you can see, you can't see, you're black, blue, brown, purple. If you are a human being, there's nothing you can do that makes you perfect. What does that mean by definition? All of us are imperfect. All of us mess some stuff up. Since through the law comes knowledge of sin, 
Because when I look at the law, when I look at God, when I look at what's right, it shines a big, huge light on the fact that I'm broken. On the fact that I'm messed up. All of us, every last one of us are broken. Every last one of us are messed up. Some of us just cover it up better than others. Some of us put on enough paint, makeup, clothes to where we look like we know what we're doing. But let's be real honest. None of us do. We come in and we want everybody to believe our family's perfect and our children are well behaved. They're not. As, as one book I recently read said, children are punks. <laughs> you know, they are. They do bad stuff and they aggravate the fire out of us. And most of us, when we're not loving them, want to choke them out. Right? But let's be honest with it. Let's say my family's a little messed up and they're trying to get it right, but they're kids. That's what kids do. Let's be honest with who we are as parents, as families. My wife and I don't have a perfect marriage. Sometimes we argue and fight and fuss. But so do you. We all do. Some of us may do it louder than others. Some of us may kick and throw things, but we're not naming names or pointing fingers here tonight. But we're all really the same. Because he says that we are all imperfect, but listen now, the righteousness of God. It's been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. That the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there's no distinction. The next verse says all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. All of us are messed up. I don't care what color you are. I don't care what kind of car you drive. I can tell you no matter how good you hide it, you're just as messed up as I am. I may be worse. And that tells us that that same part of us that's messed up has the same big hole in the middle of our lives that's begging for Jesus. Now it just manifests itself different because all of us take different stuff and try to put it in that hole. We are born, I am completely, 100%, utterly convinced all of us are born with a hole in our lives that we try to take stuff and fill up. Some people fill it up with self-righteousness. And we call those good people. I'm going to do a bunch of good stuff and be nice to people, and therefore everybody's going to think I'm good. Some people fill that up with sexual immorality and lasciviousness and drunkenness. Now, are they any worse off than the self-righteous people? No. They just look worse because they're not hiding in those things. But all of us are doing the same thing. We're trying to fill the same hole. We're just filling it with different stuff. And when you start to fill that hole with messy stuff that doesn't fit and doesn't work, sometimes it's hard to clean that thing back out. Sometimes it's hard to clean that thing back out. Because the fit for that hole, as Paul writes here in Romans, is the righteousness of God. God's what belongs in that hole in our lives. And every last person you meet, regardless of what they look or how they feel, or what they're doing, all have that same distinction. We're all exactly alike. Every last one of us. The second step is that the understanding how much love our God has for us. 
This fact, I'm unequivocally persuaded, is the biggest misunderstood thing in the world. I'm going to say that again. How much love God has for us is the biggest misunderstood thing in the world. We don't get it. You know why I don't think we get it? Because Paul says in Ephesians chapter 3, starting in verse 16 through the next four or five verses, as he prays for the church at Ephesus, that he prays that they need strength in the inner man via the Spirit to have the, the knowledge, not that comes from self, but that comes from God, to understand the height and breadth and depth and width of the love of God in Christ Jesus. That's what Paul says. Paul says we don't need help from God about knowledge to understand the sea beast in Revelation. He doesn't say that. He doesn't say we need help from God with strength via the inner man to understand the things that he wrote about to the church at Rome that half of us don't understand, self-included. He doesn't say any of that. He said you need help to be able to get how much God loves you. Because, friends, it doesn't make sense. It doesn't make sense under any circumstances that God would love us as much as he does. Galatians chapter 3, 27 and 28 says, For as many of you were baptized into Christ, have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free. There is male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. The love of God breaks down every barrier Jew or Greek, slave or free, male or female, it doesn't matter what our distinction or our difference is. That's the point of Galatians 3. I don't care what's different about you. I love you and I want to save you. I'm going to ask you a question and I want you to consider this. When did God know, when did God know in his infinite wisdom, when he would have to send his son, his only son, to die for our sins. When did God know that? Paul writes to the church in Ephesus in Ephesians chapter 1 that he knew that before the foundation of the world. So I want you to consider this. God created man knowing that he would have to save us through the blood of his son. God entered and created a flawed relationship. And he still did it. How many of you tonight would get married knowing that next week your wife's going to cheat on you or your husband's going to cheat on you and commit adultery? How many say, yes, sign me up, let's do that tonight? No takers? I wouldn't either. But in the book of Hosea, one of the minor prophets, God says that's what you do when you commit sin against me. You commit adultery spiritually. That's the metaphor that God uses. And he still did it. He said, I know you're going to break my heart. I know it's going to hurt. I know I'm going to have to sacrifice, but I love you so much in spite of your flaws. We love based on reciprocity, right? Not to get too much into a language lesson tonight. Reciprocity is, I do for you as long as you do for me, right? I love you as long as you love me back. I love you as long as I get something out of it, right? 
I got a buddy I keep around because he makes me laugh. If he stopped making me laugh, we wouldn't hang out anymore. He's just not that interesting otherwise. He tells good jokes. That's how we build our relationships, right? I love you as long as you love me. As long as I'm putting all of me in and you put all of you in, this works. But if one of us stops, the relationship ends, right? Anybody have a one-sided relationship that lasts a long time? Nope. So we cut it off. How many of us have had this conversation with somebody that a relationship ended with? I feel like I'm the only one in this relationship. Ever had that? Ever had that say, I always call you, I'm always checking on you, I'm always doing stuff for you, and I don't feel like you even know that I'm doing that. And what do we do in that relationship? We walk away. Because there's no reciprocity. God doesn't love like that. God says, I know you're flawed. I know you're messed up. I know you're going to continue to mess up. I know you're going to continue to break my heart. But not only am I in the relationship, I'm going to continue to pursue you. I'm going to come after you. Ask yourself this question. Every time man's messed up, Genesis to Revelation, who fixes it? Who fixes it? Does man fix it? Or does God fix it? What happens when man tries to fix it? Makes it worse. Right? We screw it up worse. Genesis to Revelation, God fixes it. How many of you in a committed relationship, married or have another committed relationship, when you mess something up, the other person fixes it? That don't work in my house either. I make my wife mad. I got to go make her unmad. She's not going to come to me and say, hey, you know, you made me mad, but I'm going to make this right. That doesn't work. You got to fix it. Whoever does, inflicts the pain has to also alleviate the pain, right? That's not how God works. God comes to us and pursues us and loves us. And he doesn't love just me because I'm a good guy. He loves all the other scumbags too, no matter how bad they look on the outside, no matter what's in their hole that they've tried to fill their lives with. And he said, I don't care what your past is. I want you. And I'll do anything for you. Some people picture Judgment Day, and the scene on Judgment Day is God there with lightning bolts, raining fire from the sky, like some mad totalitarian dictator. I picture Judgment Day of a loving Heavenly Father with tears in his eyes as he casts those into the lake of fire for the second death, saying, I did everything I could. And why didn't you love me? That's the love of God in Christ Jesus. For all of us. It's amazing that he loves anybody that well. But when I stop looking at people and start looking at souls, I see that soul in the same condition that I was. Lost, afraid, and alone. And had no idea what to do. Even though on the outside I projected that I had all the answers. I got this figured out. I'm good. You're the one that's crazy. Because that's what we project in the moment. Third thing we need to do. 
we need to understand just how much we need each other. None of us can do this alone. I'm the first one to tell you standing in front of you tonight, I need every last one of you. Got to have you. Got to have you. Because that's what Paul says. To the church at Corinth, 1 Corinthians 12, 11 through 14 says it this way. All of these are empowered by one and the same spirit. Stop. He's talking about everybody that has gifts. And we're not just talking about spiritual gifts, speaking in tongues, healing, all that stuff. We're talking about every gift that we got. Some of us have a gift of encouragement. Some of us have a gift to talk and present. Some of us have a gift of counseling. We all have different gifts, right? Not all of them are supernatural. He says, who apportions to each one individually as he wills. For just as the body is one and has many members, and all of the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body. Jews are Greeks, slaves are free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. For the body does not consist of one member, but many. How many of us can do without some part of our body? Now, before some smart aleck says, what about the appendix? Let's stop, okay? It used to do something. But I can't do without any of this, even the extra stuff. We need all of it. Can we cut off our hand or our foot or our ear and say that we're at optimum level? No. Because the rest of the body, when we're missing a piece, what does the rest of the body have to do? Compensate. Because we need that piece. Right? So the rest of the body overworks to get that piece. Churches today are overworking because they're missing pieces that would make them better. And those pieces look different than the pieces we already have. Some of those pieces are black, brown, purple. Those pieces are different. And they make us better. We're all very different. One of the things I've gone out to the singing school in, in, in Oklahoma that R.J. Stevens and those guys put on a couple of times. What I learned going out there is I love people that think with the other side of the brain than I do. For those of you that don't know, I work in finance, financial planning, all that stuff through the day, and then uh, that supports my preaching habit. In that, I work with numbers. One plus one equals two. It makes sense. It's fluid. It's constant. I know exactly where I'm going. And I go out to singing school and I meet people that write songs that say what I feel with words that I've never thought to use. Those are the other kind of brain folks. And I meet them and I see that they experience God differently than I experience God. They feel things that my brain doesn't feel because I'm not inclined that way. But they explain to me the way that they're tied in and tapped in because that's how they're wired. And I sit in awe as I listen to them. And they explain what things mean to them and how they see passages of Scripture and how they have seen things work and move and act in their lives. And I sit in awe. I think, wow, I love that you think like this. Because I can't do it. And they make me better. And I come back being better for knowing them. And what I think of when I get back is we need a few more of those folks here. They probably live in town. Let's go find them. Imagine the skill set that all of us have 
and that we've seen great people in our society have. What kind of elder would a man like Jack Welch be? Jack Welch was the CEO of GE. Took it to a huge multinational corporation, and he empowered his people, made his people better from the least to the greatest. He was one of the great innovators and managers of our time. What could he have done as an elder of a local church? What if he was inclined spiritually? Or men like Steve Jobs and Bill Gates and these captains and titans of industry that were very successful financially. What could that skill set do in the Lord's church? We need all kinds of different people. Makes us better. Because we fit better together. And there's nobody, regardless of their background, that we don't need. There's nobody we don't need. We need them all. And if we look at it from that standpoint, that the same soul that cries out the way my soul cries out needs the same God that I need. We just cry a little different. We just scream a little different. We just beg a little different. So what's all this mean? Racism divides, alienates, and destroys. Racism asks what's different. Racism seeks for us to be at odds with one another. God unites, adopts, and empowers. God says, you're all mine. And I'll bring you together and I'll fit you together and I'll put you together. And the glue that holds all these different puzzle pieces together is the blood of his son. Whom he loved us so much that he freely gave in order that we might be his. Not slaves, but heirs. Children. Many of the ills of our society that manifest themselves in racism are about people that are hurting and lost and seeking for a way to manifest that hurt and loss. I'm convinced there are people that are hurting bad that burned down Ferguson. There are people that are hurting bad that burned down Baltimore that need to understand and experience love. From somebody that has nothing to gain by loving them. There is no reciprocity in the gospel. The gospel is the power to overcome racism because all of us have the same base equal need. When we strip down the external and we look nothing at souls, we're all scared, frightened, and alone. And we're all in deep need of a loving, merciful Heavenly Father and the blood of his covenant. Tonight we've talked a lot about this issue of racism. And to me the underlying issue is if you take nothing else away from this, we got to stop looking at the external and start looking at souls. We got to stop looking at what's different and start looking at what's the same. And we have to understand how great our God's love is and the fact that Jesus died for the whole world. People as ugly as we are and uglier. And we all need them the same. How do we get to this uniting adoption and empowering? Well, we get there quite simply when we trust God. 
when we stop trusting all the rest of this stuff that doesn't work. The government's not going to fix our problems. Your parents are not going to fix your problems. A stronger leader at work is not going to fix your problems. Our problems are fixed by going back to the Creator because He's the only one that gets us. If we'll trust in the Creator, it'll let us let everything else go. It'll give us the strength, the courage, and the power to say, I've tried everything else. That stuff doesn't work. I just want to try God. That's all repentance is. Just give all the rest of the stuff up. That allows us to confess, leads us, causes us, yields our heart to say, it is Jesus who is my pathway home, who is the way, the truth, and the life, and the only way to the Father, which we die with him in baptism being united in his death, that we might be united in his resurrection, that we can all finally go home and be one. The way it's meant to be. The way God designed it to be. That we walk and talk together. These corruptible bodies are going to put on that which is incorruptible one day. And we'll all gather around that throne together and not think about where we've been, but think about where we are. We rise to that newness of life longing for that day that we can finally go home. Tonight, if you're not a child of God, all things are ready. Overcome the ills of this world, not with the fixes of this world, but with the fixes of the power of God and come to Him. If you are a child of God and you've fallen into this trap of loving the world, of caring about things that the world cares about, and you forgot what your focus should be, your trust should be, and how much our God loves you, Now's the time, if you sin in a public manner, is an expedient time to repent publicly, or maybe you just hurt. Maybe when I talked about that big hole in your life, that's what you still got. Let's help you. Let's talk to you. Let's get you where you ought to be, where you should be, and where God wants you to be while we stand and while we sing.